Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspire Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. All right, all right. Good morning, Inspire family. So glad to see you here this morning. Yes, you should give yourselves a round of applause for being here because it is a gloomy day and it might have been a little extra hard to get out of them sheets this morning. I know that's how I am. And uh, man, I re- this morning kind of reminded me of growing up. When I had a teenager, my great-grandmother would bring me to her Pentecostal church and she was pretty strict. Anybody have like a strict mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, like church grandma that was just like, you know, you going, if you're dead, I'm going to drag you type of situation. If you're sick, Jesus can heal you at the altar type of, you know, that was my grandma. That was my grandma. And I remember growing up, it was, actually, I was a little bit confused sometimes because I'm like, is church fun or not? Because, you know, she'd get into church and she'd just start running and jumping and clapping and she'd be going in and having a good time. So I'm like, oh, is this what we're doing? So we, you know, I'm just grooving with the music and she'd be like, stop playing around. Oh, okay. Well, what are we doing here, grandma? You know, and she knew how to like sing and spank you at the same time. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like she used to go out, she had a willow tree and she used to tell us when we were in trouble, go pick out your switch. And what that meant was you picked out a switch and then she'd have all these leaves and she'd just go, and she'd get all the leaves out of it, no joke. And she would use that just, I think she like had it like hid under her sleeve. And so she'd be over there praising the Lord, pow, hit it back in, ninja style, right? And I'd be like, thank you, just go, oh, oh, you know. And uh, man, and so this morning reminded me of that. I was like, Grandma, I don't want to get up. And she's like, you better get up. I heard her voice. You know, I could feel it. And, uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm happy I'm here. I'm happy you're here. And uh, Pastor Phil is away on vacation today. And so you are stuck with me, but we miss him. Yes, we miss him. So uh, we are in actually something really exciting. We are on a journey. The next nine months, we are on a journey um, with a theme of know the story, tell the story. And basically what it is, is that there is a story that our society has either completely forgot or completely rejected, but it is a story that they desperately need. And we need to learn to be better storytellers, especially here in the Bay Area where we live in a society that is postmodern and pluralistic. And how do we do that? And so we need to tell the story. But the only way to tell the story is to first know the story, right? In order to tell the story, we have to know the story. Look at what Craig Bartholomew, theologian, says, he says, many of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits, right? Theological bits, moral bits, historical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits, right? All of these little parts. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore its divine author's intention to shape our lives through its story. Do you know the story? Do you know the story that's God's story, the story about God, and the story about you? The story about God and the story about you. 
And my question this morning is even more specific than that. My question is, do you know the song in the story? And that's what I'm talking about this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, God, because you are the creator of all things. You are the star breather, my God. You are over all creation, and everything that was created was created by you and for you, my God. And I pray that today that we will have a better understanding of not just creation, but the creator. And Lord, that you will help us, that your spirit will continue to disciple and develop us to reflect you and your love more. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. This morning, in order to understand the story, well, we have to go to the beginning, which is why this series is called Origins. And last week, Pastor Phil did an incredible job at kicking, uh, kicking it off and, and saying, in the beginning, God, and talked about who God was in the beginning, Right? In fact, who God was before the beginning, who he was before there was matter, before there was a single particle, before there was a cell that ever formed, who was God then? But this morning, we're talking about creation. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about God's song, and then I want to talk about creation's song. And then I want to talk about your song. Is that okay? God's song, creation song, and then our song. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of time on point number one, so I don't want you to be like, oh my gosh, he's, he's barely on point number two. We're going to be here for three hours. Don't worry, we'll beat the Baptist at the buffet. But I'll just say this, that um, point number two will be pretty quick and point number three as well. So, but I want to build on point number one because it's important. So let's turn to Genesis chapter one, and what we're going to do is we're going to read one through eight, and then we're going to skip down to verse 31, partly because this is a very familiar text that God created in six days, um, and so, uh, but also partly because of time. Genesis chapter one says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Then God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So the waters that are on this globe and the waters that are in the heaven, right? Or clouds and so on and so forth. And so God separated them under the expanse from the water above. And it was so, God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Then down to verse 31, because this pattern continues, evening and morning, evening and morning, day three, day four, day five, and day six. And then we have verse 31, and God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. There was evening, and then there was morning, the sixth day. These are the six days of creation, 
And the problem is, is over the last 150 years or so, if you've lived either in North America, right, or in Europe, the question people have always had when they approach Genesis 1 and looking at what it says is, well, how did this happen? Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's really talk about, well, what does this look like? And, and did God create in six days? Is this literal? What, what are we talking about here? How did it happen? And I want to actually ask a bigger question, the why question. But just to scratch the itch for those of you that are in the room that are saying, okay, yeah, yeah, but let's not forget about the how. How do we interpret this? Well, what I want to do is just present to you some ways that theologians have interpreted these six days of creation. The first one is called the calendar day view. And what that really represents is you'll see that it's a way of looking at the days chronologically. In other words, looking at them, day one, you have light and dark, and day two, you have the sky and the water, and day three, you have the land and the plants, and day four, the sun and the stars, and five, the fish and the birds, and six, the land animals and humans. And, and so the first way to look at this is to let, take it literal, that these days are literal 24-hour solar days. One way of interpreting this is to say, yes, God created all universe in six literal 24-hour days. Most people who take on this viewpoint are called young earth creationists. They believe, you know, the earth was uh, six to 10,000 years old, something like that, okay? Um, but of course, there's some questions that arise on this because they say, well, uh, for instance, when, if a day... If the word day equals a 24-hour period, then what do you do with the seventh day? It says God rested on the seventh day from creating things in this universe. Well, does that mean he rested for 24 hours and he's creating things just all of a sudden they're popping up right now on our planet? Or what is, how do you interpret that? Or even when it says morning and evening a day, how do we know that a day is a day? Well, we know a day is a day when the earth circles around the sun. And so we know what 24 hours are because we are able to see the, the earth and the sun and how it rotates. And that's how we calculate a day. Well, then how do we get that in day one? Because there is no earth in day one. In fact, there, there is no earth in day two. There's no sun in day one. And so some theologians say, well, no, I think there's a different way of looking at how to interpret this scripture. So by contrast of the calendar day view, the second way that theologians have interpreted this is what they call the day age view. In other words, each day actually represents an age. That age could have been a thousand years, a million years, a billion years, but each day represents a certain amount of time. And, and how we're reading this is from God's viewpoint. After all, the Bible says that a day to God is like a thousand years to us. And that verse is a poetic way of talking about from God's viewpoint of time. And so another way of interpreting this is by looking at each of these days as long periods. Long periods that God used to create. And from there, we're seeing it from God's perspective. The third one that I want to share 
is one called the literary view. Not to be confused with the literal view, but literary view, meaning they look at the literary constructions, the literary devices that the author used to put together Genesis. And they look and say, okay, what was the genre here? How was this made up? What, what, what literary structures were used? And when you do that, you actually find that a lot of times in Hebrew, they would use things and the way they would talk with, about things would be in parallels. And so if that's the case, then what we would do is we would parallel this. We parallel one day one and four and two and five and three and six. And when you do that, what you'll notice is that there's correlations between them. There's connections between these days. If you notice, right, you see light and dark and then you see sun and stars, you see sky and water, and then you see fish and birds, right? You see land and plants, and then you see land, animals, and humans. That this is a literary structure designed not to give us some sort of specific scientific description, but rather to show us something bigger than how, a pattern. To show us a character of who? Well, of the one that's creating. Because what you'll see is you'll see that there are these realms. Days one, two, and three describe these realms of habitation. But then you'll see that days four, five, and six fill these realms. So day one is light and darkness, but day four flows into day one. The, if the stars and the moon fill the light and the darkness, they are the light in the darkness, you see? And then in the heavens, you have the birds and, and, and you have the water that was on day two. And so you have the birds and the fish and they fill those habitations. And then you have the land that comes up from the sea. And so you have this land and plants and then you have land animals and humans that inhabit these, this land. And so you have a description of, of habitations and then you have a description of the inhabitate, of, the, of those that it inhabits. You see that? And, it, and it's a way of putting it together, of understanding this creation narrative so you don't miss what God is trying to teach us. Now, let me just say this. No matter how you slice it or dice it, no matter where you land on how to interpret this, these are all Christian views of understanding this passage. And so you can land on any one of them and you'd still be considered under the pale of Christian orthodoxy. In other words, it's not like one of those means if you believe it, you're not a Christian and the other ones you are. You can land on any of those and, and, and you're still a Christian, but it is interesting to see the different ways in which you can interpret this passage. But for me, the question is, well, if we get so focused on the granular that you miss the forest because of the trees. Because how questions really aren't as important as why questions. For instance, if I were to give you a gift and you were to open up and you're like, oh, I wonder how this was made. Now that's an interesting question, but the more important question is, well, why did I give it to you? Why did I choose that particular gift? What's my relationship with you that I would give this to you? You see? Genesis 1 is not designed to answer the question of how. It's designed to talk about the why. 
It's designed to talk about what creation means and its significance and so forth. And this is really interesting because what happens is when you take a step back and when you look at the forest, when you look at the bigger picture, you begin to see patterns emerge. You begin to see a structure there that says something, not just about the author, but about the one that the author is talking about. Jeffrey Morrow describes it this way, that Genesis 1 shows us the way that he organizes and structures this chapter, tells us something subtly. It tells us something subtly that we may miss if we don't take a step back. For instance, there is this, there is this uh, crazy sort of pattern when it comes to sevens, right? The first sentence in Hebrew is seven letters of this passage. The second sentence is 14, I'm sorry, four, seven words. The second sentence is 14 words. And so you still see seven in there, seven times two. And, and then here we begin to see this great symbolic architecture of the number seven. But there's more because there's seven days. There's seven paragraphs. Seven times the narrator tell us God saw, God saw, God saw. Seven times it says on the earth, on the earth, on the earth. Seven times it says and there was, and there was. The heavens occurred 21 times, which is seven times three. And that whole section, there are 469 words, which is 67 times seven. And so you see this pattern of seven. Well, what, what does that mean? What, what significance is that to us? Well, what the narrator is doing is he is subtly characterizing God and the things he created. You see, this numerical structure, its repetition of seven, is meant to quietly communicate the exquisite design, the otherworldly orderness of his creation and of the creator, the creator's character, that it is perfect. That the creator is perfect and his creation is perfect. You see? It means that you have to be relatively careful not to push the details because it's not there to give you the details. Let me give you a quick example. If you've studied Genesis 1 and 2 at all, you'll find out instantly that Genesis 1 has a creation account and Genesis 2 has a creation account and they contradict each other. Well, what do you do with that? Well, you see, the only reason that maybe someone doesn't understand that is maybe they don't understand the Bible. Because in the Bible, what you see is you see this happen time and time again. For example, in Exodus 14, you have a count, a, a, an historical account of the crossing of the Red Sea. But then in Exodus 15, you have a song about the crossing. Miriam sings a song. Now, the song is much different than the account. It's more lyrical. It's more repetitive. It's more metaphor uh, metaphorical, right? Or if you go to Judges 4, you have an account of a historical event, which is a great victory that Israel had over its invading armies. That's in Judges 4. But in Judges 5, you have a song about it. Deborah wrote a song about the event, which is much different 
Again, repetition and a lot of metaphor. Like she talks about the stars coming from the heavens and that these stars fought against their enemy. Are, is she saying that these like comets came down and just wiped them out? No. What she's saying is something, she's bringing poetry and art to something that happened historically, which is that Israel got in a war and they won. They won. Right? And so what you have is, is you have history and then you have a song about it. Or you have a song and then you'll have history about it. And if you compare the two, you could say, oh, they contradict. No, they contradict because you're reading them as though they are the same genre. But you don't read a, po a poem the same way you read an article, you see. Well, what's interesting is Genesis 1 has an enormous amount of repetition, right? Do you see it? Over and over again. The evening and the morning. The evening and the morning. Which is opposite from what we say. We'll say morning and evening. But evening and morning. Evening and morning, right? Evening, morning. First day. Second day. Third day. And so forth. Repetition. Over and over again. And it is good. And it is good. And it is good. And it is good. Over and over again. You see. And, but then when you get to Genesis 2, it's different. Why? Because Genesis 2 is a historical reading, and Genesis 1 is a song. It's God's song. It's God's song. And because Genesis 1 is a song, then we ask the general questions and not the specific. We ask the why. Do you hear God's song? We don't press for detail. We, 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 we don't stay so in the weeds that we cannot get back and see the bigger picture. I remember when I was taking art class in, uh, what was it? I don't know, high school maybe. And, uh, you know, there's something there on the table and they want you to draw it. And so you're drawing it. And, and I remember, like, I was just there focused and my art teacher came and, and uh, he said, Hey, Roger, why don't you take a step back for a little bit, look at it. Come in again, make some more, take a step back. And it was so important because if I stayed too close, then actually I missed the whole picture. I missed the very significance of what it is that I was trying to draw, you see. Do you hear the song? And so this text talks about how the world began but it actually talks also about something more important, which is why? Why? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means that this world is not a result of chance. It's not a result of an accident. It's not a result of random forces. And that's the secular view, isn't it, right? That, that's society's view, that the world was not created by God, but you can account for it by um, an accidental collision of, you know, molecules, right? And so Genesis kind of flies in the face of that because it says God created the heavens and earth. But it doesn't just say created. It uses a very specific word for the word created, one that is only used in reference to when God creates versus when we create. And it's this word ex nihilio. Ex nihilio means out of nothing. See, when we create, we take materials to create. When God created, it literally means he created out of nothing. 
It doesn't mean there was some matter and he took some matter and there was some time and he took some time. It also doesn't mean he took part of himself and from himself he created it. No, out of absolutely nothing, God created. God created. And so what we have is we kind of have modern mythology and ancient mythology. Modern mythology says, well, that this was an accident, that, that this is the only reality, the material world is only reality, and, and there's nothing else. And then you have ancient mythologies, and ancient mythologies, they don't say it was an accident per se, but what they do say is that they have tons of different creation stories, thousands of them, hundreds of them, right? Right? But what's interesting is none of them, when you go to read them, is out of nothing. It's always out of something. You know, two gods got together and fought, and from their blood came the universe or something like that. Or, you know, the milk of a cow or whatever. Like, it's always from something. They killed the sea serpent, and that created the earth. And it's always from something, never from nothing. Ancient mythology, modern mythology, Right? But here you have Genesis 1, which God is creating the heavens and the earth, ex nihilio, out of nothing, which means that he gives it its own being. Right? All ancient mythologies, even Eastern religions today, say this world is not real. This world isn't that important. It's an illusion, right? You want to go beyond this world. The body is the prison house of the soul, if you will. But this is very different. See, and modern mythology says, well, this world is all there is. And so that's materialism. And so that means that you will live for material. You live for wealth or for pleasure. You live for it because that's all there is. And so on one hand, ancient mythology says, well, this world isn't important at all. On the other hand, it's just materialism. And this is why... You never get things like social justice. You never get anybody in sort of these ancient mythologies saying, we need to put an end to slavery. Why? Because in ancient mythologies, you're detached. You say, well, what can you do? That's the way it is. This isn't real anyway. Why help? Why fix anything? That we're all, we're all leaving this place anyway. And that's just the way it is. That the goal is to get to the afterlife. Genesis 1 says, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, this world is not all there is, but we don't worship it. We don't live for material things. God created it. He gave it its own being. He created it out of nothing, and it is good. Over and over again, he says, it is good. It is good. It is good. The world is real, and the world is not unimportant. Therefore, you do fight against injustice, Therefore, you do do hospitals and orphanages and so on and so forth. You do all these things because they point to the greater reality that this world is important. Right? We don't say, well, someday we're going to heaven, so, oh well. No, the doctrine of creation is very interesting. Because when you get to Revelation 21, the end of the Bible... All other religions, all other ancient myths are always about leaving this planet. It's escaping this world. We're going to escape this world and we're going to go to heaven over there. But not the Bible. If you notice in Revelation 21, where is heaven? The Bible says that heaven comes down. Not that we go up, but heaven comes down. 
Where's heaven going to be? Right here. Well, what universe? This universe. It'll be restored and renewed. Heaven comes to earth. It's not, it's not a, you know, beam me up Scotty type of situation. But rather, it's heaven coming to earth. Wow. So we work against injustice. We, 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 we have hospitals and orphanages and, and, and we continue to do medicine. Why? Because this earth is important. Because when we do those things, it points to everyone else in the world that guess what? One day, all of this are going to be restored. All of this is going to be renewed. And so, and so, yes, the material world is important, but we don't live for it, Right? We don't live for it. We're not materialists, right? We don't live for pleasure. Now, we're not afraid of pleasure, but we don't live for pleasure. We don't live for wealth. We're not afraid of wealth, but we don't live for wealth. It's not that we don't have things. We just don't let those things have us. We don't let those things have us, you see. We don't do that. Do you hear God's song? Do you see what's happening here? See, and there's clues throughout, which is really interesting because God comes and he says, let there be light. God never creates without speaking. Do you know that? He speaks everything into creation. He never creates without speaking. He creates through speaking. That's very different. That's different. His speaking is different than my speaking. My speaking, if I say, let there be light, then that means that I'll need to go and I'll need to turn on the light switch. Or what I'll probably do is just sit on the couch and yell at one of my girls to come over here, drop what they're doing, and turn on the light switch. Because that is one of the few benefits of having kids. Just kidding. Right? I mean, that's just my life, right? Little walking is possible. Praise you, Jesus. So if I can get one of them to do it, yes, it's a good day. But that's what has to happen if I want light, but not God. See, God, when God speaks, it has agency, It has power in itself. How? Why? Well, here's a clue. So God is speaking, but we don't just see God here, right? We don't just see God speaking. What else do we see? We see the spirit hovering. So we see God speaking. We see a spirit hovering. And then we see something very fascinating in verse 26. When God gets ready to create humanity, he says uh, this in verse 26. He says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Now, who's he talking to? Well, some people say, he, well, maybe he's talking to the angels, right? Well, we're not created in the image of the angels. We're created in the image of God. So then who's us? Who's he talking to? For, for example, Isaiah 40, 14 says that when he created the world, with whom did he take counsel? Meaning he didn't have to go and get a vote. He didn't have to say, well, what do you guys think? Maybe we should try this out. Let's kick this idea around a little bit. You know, maybe let's get in a business meeting and let's try to you know, brainstorm and write something on a whiteboard. No, he didn't have to take anybody. He did it all by himself. It was him and him alone. If that's true, then who's us? Who's us? Oh, well, see, what we realize is that the, is that the Father's word, who did the creating, the Father's word, is a person, that the word is a son, his son. See, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, 
and the word was God. And notice, and the word was with God. So the word was God and with God and was in the beginning. Through him, who? The word. See how there's personhood now? Word, him, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had been made. Well, who's the him? Well, if you go down to verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, what he says is this, is that Jesus did the creating. See, nothing was created except through the word of God, who is Jesus. And if you go back to Genesis 1, you see that's absolutely right. God never created without his word. Creation comes through the word, through the spirit, through the father, the trinity. The trinity. Genesis 1 tells us that there was, that in the beginning, before the beginning, there was this community. There was a community of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit doing creation together, saying, let us make humanity in our image. God, from all eternity, has been a community and a circle of love. And maybe the Trinity, the idea of three persons, one God, maybe that overloads your circuits a little bit. It should. But, I mean, the concept of who God is should do that a little bit. Any being that we can fully understand probably isn't God. Probably isn't God, you see. And so from from love all eternity, this is what St. Augustine was talking about when he was talking about the Trinity, is that from all eternity, there was a community of love. And if you don't do that, if you take away the concept of Trinity, then you take away the concept of love being eternal. Love might have come across sometime later, maybe when God created humanity or something. Love came later. The problem is, is if love came later, then that means love isn't intrinsic to the universe. It also means that love isn't intrinsic to God, which also means the thing that you're talking about isn't God. You see. Well, maybe you need another another cup of coffee to get that in. (laughs) But it's just to say this. Take away Trinity, you take away love. Then that means the ultimate reality is no longer love. It's not intrinsic. But the Bible says the ultimate reality is love and that it is intrinsic. That they knew and loved each other from all eternity. Do you hear the song of God? What does it mean? Why is God speaking and singing to creation? Why? Because he wants relationship. You see? He wants relationship. He made creation to sing back. Number two, creation song. See, the purpose of nature is to sing. And that answers the question, doesn't it? Well, what question? The question of why we are so moved when we see nature. Why? Why is that? If maybe you're, 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 you're skeptical, if maybe you're not sure if God exists and, and you don't even know if you believe in God, right? And, and maybe nature, you think, is just a result of random forces. It, well, of forces, then why is it that when you look at the mountains and you look at the sea and you listen to the noise of the waves and the babbling brook or the thunder of a waterfall that you are moved? There's something about it that's different. 
There's something about it that is different, isn't it? The smells, the experience of it. Genesis 1 tells us why. That nature is singing the praises of its maker. And it's calling you in. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Watch this. We do not just want to see beauty when we look at nature. We want to see something else, which we can hardly put into words. We want to be united with the beauty that we see. We, we want to pass into it. We, we want to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to be a part of it. That's why all of our legends have, what we've done is we've peopled the air and we've peopled the earth and the water with gods and nymphs and elves. That's why all the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the wind could really sweep us, sweep into our human soul, but it can't. At present, we feel like we're on the outside of the world, right? The wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the beauty of the morning, but, but, but that doesn't mean they make us that way. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see. Somehow, we feel cut off from something. Genesis 1 says, nature is a choir. It's a choir. You say, well, when I see it and look at nature, I see death and, you know, survival of the fittest. Oh, we'll, oh, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. Come back. But you must admit, I mean, look at the clam. L look at the birds of paradise. Look at the horse. Look at a mountain. Look at the ocean. Look at the waves. If even you don't have the worldview to understand it as such, they are singing. They're saying our master loves us. Our maker says we are good. It's praising the creator. It's glorifying the creator. It's reflecting the creator. It's singing to you about God. And it's inviting you in. And yet, we can't get in. It's inviting you in. And yet, we can't get in. It's telling you that you have a song too. Number three, your song. Your song. Why does, why does C.S. Lewis says it calls us in but we can't go in? Because we can't sing the same song. Why? Because every human being has made a choice to try to be their own master, haven't we? Of course we have. Of course we have. We, we, we try to take our lives into our own hands. Every day, we, we end up trying to do something to where we, we, be, we, we, be, we try to become our own God. Our, uh, we, 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 we try to, you know, sail our own ship, so to speak. We've all done that. And we find ourselves absolutely hopeless. Genesis 1 is saying our maker loves us and our maker says that we are good, that our maker enjoys us, that he delights in us, Right? Genesis 1 says we, that we were built to live under the benediction of God. Deep in your soul, you need something. Deep in your soul, I need something more than anything else. Deep in our soul, we need something more than we need anything else. And that is to hear that our master looks at us and says, I love you and you are good. Yeah. Acceptance, fully and truly to be loved. We need that. We'll need that. And we'll do anything for it almost. You see? 
And so you, the song that the, where God looks at you and says you are good, but you can't sing it, you can't enter in because you look at yourself and you say, wait a minute, I'm not good. I'm not blemish free. I have problems. I can't even live up to my own standards. What do I do? Genesis 1 points to it. In the beginning. Where else does it say in the beginning? Well, John 1. John 1 says in the beginning was the word. And then John 1 continues to tell us that the word was Jesus and that Jesus came and he lived. He entered into history and he came and he lived and he died on a cross, on the cross. And what's interesting is what happened to Jesus on the cross was the exact opposite of Genesis 1. See, because Jesus spoke and there was no answer. That never happened to him before. He would speak and something would happen. There'd be light, light. Now he's speaking and there's nothing. No answer. He was made without form or void on the cross. He was emptied instead of being filled. He sought the presence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, the spirit's not hovering. No, the very opposite of creation happened to Jesus on the cross. He was decreated. Why? Our maker was unmade so we could be remade. You see. Our creator was decreated so we could be recreated. So we can understand this. So we can enter in and find Jesus Christ. To fall in love with the creator. St. Augustine put it this way. To fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him is the greatest adventure. To find him is the greatest human achievement. Do you believe he died on the cross for you? That he lived the life that you should have lived and, and, uh, and died on the cross and died in your place? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you know that God loves at you? Do you know that through Jesus Christ, he looks at you and says, you are good. Through the blood of his son, he looks at you and he says, you are good. Through Jesus Christ, right now, he looks at you and says, you are good. Oh, that should tear us up inside. That should cause attention. But that is the story. That is the song, you see. And if you don't know this, then you don't know the story. If you don't know this, you need to hear so badly that the Spirit of God brings the word into your heart, that your life is without form or void. Your life is empty without it. And you will do anything to fill that void. Jesus Christ was made void for you. You see. Jesus Christ was undone so you can be redone so that way when he looks at you, he says, you are good. You're good. And when you enter into that song, when you enter into that song, he hears you, but he sees his son. This is the song, the song that all creation is singing, the song that comes together and, and we can enter in and say, yes, Lord Jesus, you love me. And I love you. God is singing to creation. 
and creation is singing back. Will you join that choir? Would you stand to your feet? The maker was unmade so you can be remade. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. Wow. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord God, because this is a moment to celebrate and rejoice that we eat and we drink because we are free in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you're doing. I pray that as we go about our business, Lord God, that we will take time to praise the Creator. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Love you guys. Have an amazing week. God bless you.